Thanks, Roy. Uh, Roy has already led us in prayer this morning for Jim and Carol as they're leaving us. And uh, I'd like to just take a, a moment just to make a comment on what Jim had to say. Um, the first thing I'd want to say is I recognize that not everybody who comes here finds Windsor Baptist Church in just as positive a way as you do. That's sometimes because of us and our failures, sometimes because people's attitudes are different. And that's one of the things that strikes me. And one of the things that strikes me in particular about your time among us is that when you came, um, you had a very clear attitude of looking for somewhere where you could come and where you could serve, where you could worship and where you could find fellowship, which is partly why you found them. And um, that is very much to be commended. I, most of us live and grew up in the one culture. There are a number of people here who have come from different cultures and countries and backgrounds. And only you understand the challenge uh, that is required in coming into a community that is settled, that has its own way of going, that is comfortable with itself. And you've got to break into that. And uh, you have modeled for us in a wonderful way, in a very godly way, uh, what that should look like particularly should any of us find ourselves doing the same kind of thing. Um, but you've also shared your lives with us, and we've appreciated that. Um, you did have the option of simply being quiet and saying nothing and telling us little about what was happening across the pond, um, but you didn't, and you shared that with us, and you trusted us with that, and that is to be commended as well. And I think the other thing I'd want to say in response to is that one of the things that you have done is you have... Um, shared your difficulties with us and your disposition through those difficulties has been a real model of Christian living um, because you have not been uh, you have not been afraid if I can put it that way to express your pain whether it's in the loss of Carol's father whether it's in other family issues but you have never ceased to affirm your faith and it is the combination of that I think the combination of that honesty which is tremendous and certainly beside your friendship will be one of the things for which you will be deeply remembered. Um, and you will be remembered as you go back. Um, and we're particularly conscious of Carol's situation. Um, you're going back, Carol, to a situation where, which is going to constantly change, um, a situation that will not be easy as your mother gets more and more ill through Alzheimer's. Um, but we do believe God will give you the grace and the strength to manage that situation and to manage the very profound change in relationship that you're going to experience over the next couple of years but God will equip you and God will make you strong certainly our relationship with Caterpillar over the years um, has been interesting a little Baptist church in Belfast talking about a relationship with the biggest multinational company in the world or one of them well we have um, they stole Trixie Nixie from us um, better known as David Nixon and took him off to the States and then sent him off to Leicester but they sent us Quinton instead, and that fairly livened things up for a while. Um, and then they sent us you. So um, we are grateful to Caterpillar because it has, in the many things it does in the world, certainly enriched our lives as a church um, in having you present with us. So we just trust and pray that you will know God's blessing and that your trip and journey will be painless and easy. And by the time next Sunday comes and you are smothered with hugs in the good American style, we're a bit more reserved than that, as you will have noticed over the years. You will be feeling very affirmed, I'm sure, as you worship in your church at home uh, next week. 
In terms of our theme, we're working our way through a series called Being Human. And uh, this morning, um, given the day that's in it, there's a lovely phrase, hey? Who ever thought of that, the day that's in it? Um, I thought it might be useful this morning to take up the theme of being human and being parents. Um, This, if it has escaped your notice, is Mother's Day. I'm not heavily into these crudely engineered retail opportunities. But as my mother-in-law is present, I'll say no more on that score this morning. But I did think it might be a useful opportunity and appropriate time to have a look at the idea of being parents. We've looked at a a range of different uh, ways in which we are human and express and and work with our humanity. And uh, I thought the idea of looking at being parents this morning might be useful. Just as with the theme on singleness... It's not going to directly affect everyone. Everyone will have different kinds of identification with this theme. Um, But one of the things is I'm struck by actually the silence in Scripture on parenting advice. In the New Testament, there is some fairly direct instruction on the husband-wife relationship, whether it's in regard to sexuality in 1 Corinthians 7, whether it's in terms of the nature of the relationship and how it should be worked out in Ephesians 5 um, in particular. But there's relatively little, as I can see, you can put me right on this afterwards, uh, that is said equivalently about parents and children or being parents. We have in church life today a great range of parenting situations, many than would have been common years ago in church life. I think that's a good thing. Um, And those circumstances come by virtue of a whole lot of reasons. But there's still relatively little that Scripture has to say directly, it seems to me, on the issue of parenting. So I thought, rather than simply leave it to groups and organizations to fill in the gaps using knowledge of child development, psychology and traditional survival techniques in the jungle, it might be useful to see what little scripture does have to say and what we learn from it. So I want to look at this this morning in three ways. I want to look at some parenting situations in the Bible. I want to look at um, a couple of the things the New Testament has to say about parents or being parents and then a couple of lessons for us to take away. First of all, in regard to the uh, biblical accounts of being parents, there are three that I want to look at briefly with you this morning. Um, The first of them is in Judges chapter 14. You might like to turn to that just so you get a a flavor of it. We won't have time to read the whole thing, but you'll know where to find it for later on. Joshua chapter 13 and Joshua chapter 14 are the account of um, the birth of Samson and his relationship with his parents. Uh, which wasn't a particularly good relationship, as it happens. I think um, Samson was almost definitely spoiled. If you look at the beginning of chapter 13 on page 228 of the copies of the Bible that's in the pew, uh, when, uh, sorry, Judges, what am I talking Did I say Joshua? I did, sorry. I mean, Joshua, I mean Judges. You'll not find Samson in Joshua. You will find him on page 256 in Judges. Um, in verse 2 of chapter 13 at the bottom of that page a certain man of Zorah named Manoah of the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said you are sterile and childless but you are going to conceive and have a son now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son 
No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, if you read down the rest of the chapter, you'll discover that this was a difficult situation for these people. It wasn't one that the woman found particularly easy. I'm sure she didn't find not having children easy. And she certainly didn't find the message that came to her particularly easy. Her husband wasn't terribly comfortable about the way this whole thing was developing. And um, they have to test all of this before God, as it were. And they end up absolutely terrified. Verse 22, when all of this is confirmed to them, what is their response? We are doomed to die. Not because they're about to be parents, but because of what had just happened to them. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. I suspect, I rather suspect that when Samson was born, there was the real danger that Samson was a bit spoiled because of the rather unique circumstances and expectation that his parents had of him. Certainly seems to have been a demanding child and certainly seems to have been the kind of child who controlled his parents. The relationship certainly wasn't even mutual. Um, As a young adult, he was basically uncontrollable. His parents try the sweet reasonableness, reasonableness thing that parents try with young adults and teenagers from time to time. You know, the, the reasoning, the rationalization and all the rest of it, and they generally lose. Today it might be about playstations or motorbikes or coupe cars. In his case, it was about a wife. This child was a nightmare. He wanted a wife and his father and mother had to oblige and find him one as would have been the tradition in those situations. Manoah and his wife are worth studying. They are worth studying because of their fear of God and yet the precarious situation they find themselves in as parents. Being living in the fear of God, living with a real encounter with God, does not guarantee that parenting is going to be easy. The two are not necessarily the same thing. That comes out very clearly in the relationship between Manoah and his wife and their son Samson. The next passage I was thinking of in this was um, Luke chapter 2. You might like to turn over to that. Luke chapter 2. And um, particularly the uh, passage on, uh, from verse 41 on page 1029. This is about a family The key players are Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Just like Manoah and his wife and Samson, this wasn't a normal family context either. The word on the street was that this child was either conceived out of wedlock or Joseph wasn't the father of his number one son. There was a certain stigma for them to live with in this kind of situation. And there was another fear of God thing going on because both uh, Joseph and Mary had received uh, visitations from messengers from God And when the child had been born, these wise men from the east turned up to worship him. Shepherds came with gifts, talking about angels. Herod gets very angry and upset. And the early years of this family were spent among the Jewish community in Egypt, living in exile. But things have now settled down. They're living up in the northern part of the country, in the region of Galilee. And they have come to worship at the Passover in Jerusalem, as would have been part of their tradition. Joseph and Mary obviously have on their hands a very gifted and what to other people may have seemed a somewhat precocious child. While Joseph was no doubt somewhere around Jerusalem sucking on the leg of lamb and sampling the latest wine imported to Jerusalem for Passover, his son Jesus is in the temple learning from and discussing with the teachers of the law. 
And when they had packed up to go, assuming that Jesus was off with some of the others in the party, Jesus hangs back in the temple, continuing to learn from the teachers of the law. And Luke's masterly piece of writing conveys the agony for Jesus' parents of what goes on in just a few sentences. Look at what it says from verse 43. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. He's 12 years old, remember. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Not, son, where did you get this great learning in the law? Not, son, I'm so pleased to see you holding your own with these great teachers of the law. Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have anxiously been searching for you four days. What sort of psychological state was the poor woman in at this particular time? Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Parents watching and wondering what the future holds certainly isn't going to be predictable for those two people. It's going to be difficult. The third passage that um, occurred to me in this particular theme this morning was John chapter 9. Um, it's one of my favorite stories, not because it has to do with parents and children or anything like that. I just think it's one of the most interesting and well-written passages with lots of humor and stuff in it in this particular incident of the healing of the man born blind. Profound issues being dealt with, but been dealt with in a really uh, wonderful way. It's a story of a man, presumably a grown man, who has never been able to throw off the stigma of his parents' questionable lives. And equally, his parents have had to live with their, this child of theirs as a source of shame because that's the initial context to this. Um, listen to the question that the disciples ask in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That was the general approach to this kind of situation in those days. So clearly, the parents lived with the stigma of having this child, because it wasn't just that they had a child who couldn't see, it was that everybody assumed that God had judged them, and they were sinners. So they had to live with that. The child himself had to live with this stigma. Because everyone would have wondered, well, what kind of parents did he have? Or what did this child do that God visited them in this kind of way? So there's a difficult relationship there right from the very beginning. What happens is he has an encounter with Jesus. Because of the encounter with Jesus, he gets his sight back. Because he gets his sight back and everybody wants to know what's going on, the religious authorities get involved. When the religious authorities get involved and discover that Jesus is behind this and that he did it on the Sabbath... They're not at all pleased and they start an inquiry, a kind of public inquiry where they call him to give evidence and then they call also his parents to give evidence. In verse 18, the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And you can just imagine them disappearing out of the inquiry as quickly as they possibly could. Either not interested in rejoicing over his healing, or too afraid to rejoice over his healing. 
Effectively, Jesus has lifted their shame. But you don't really get any sense of that. They're overcast by the fear of being hauled before the authorities and being caught up as unwilling witnesses in the politics of the Pharisees versus Jesus. There are many more possible illustrations of parent-child relationships. If you've been around on Sunday evenings, you won't have missed the nature of the relationship, tortured and difficult as it was between David and his sons. The Bible doesn't hide the fact that just as children can be a real blessing and lots of fun and great companions, children can also bring difficulty into people's lives. They can, like Samson, make unreasonable demands of their parents and be difficult to handle. They can cause you great worry and grief as Jesus caused his father and mother. And they can get you into more trouble than you deserve sometimes, like the man who was born blind and happened to meet Jesus. But what does the New Testament have to say to us about being human and being a parent? Because it's not entirely silent on the issue, even though it doesn't say a very great deal. Besides the texts that are referred to in Romans and 2 Timothy to do with children, that see disobedience to parents as part of the signs of the end of the age, here are the other two main passages that we pick up. There are a couple of other passages in passing for example there's 2 Corinthians 12 13 to 15 where Paul is not talking about the relationship between parents and children but he mentions it in passing he says to the Corinthians I am ready to visit you for the third time and I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions but you after all children should not have to save up for their parents but parents for their children well I have to say that given the generation of skiers we're turning into Uh, We're turning Paul's assumption entirely on its head these days. Skiers uh, stands for those who are spending the kids' inheritance. Uh, And given that Gordon Brown's determined to take as much of the kids' inheritance as possible, spending it now doesn't seem to be such a bad plan, as I have explained to my daughters. Indeed, given the mess of pension provisions for my generation, I'm telling them to ignore this passage of Scripture and to turn it on its head. They need to save up now for my retirement. But Ephesians 6 and verse 1 is the first passage that um, really expresses or addresses directly the experience uh, of being parents. You'll find it on page 1177. This was always a difficult passage for me. I have difficult associations with this passage. Whenever it would have been read in church when I was growing up, we always sat on the left-hand side in the second row, uh, and I sat on the outside edge. My father sat next, then my brother keep us apart and then my mother I think that was the the order of it and every time this passage would have been read my father would have uh, unceremoniously in the ribs Uh. and that's my association with Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right I now understand why he did it and what his technique was his technique was to distract me so that I wouldn't hear Uh, the rest of the passage, particularly verse 4, Father, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And I never did hear those verses because I was always so annoyed and thumping back at him and whatever else. His his efforts were hugely successful. The other passage um, that I would refer you to is in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 20. And it's very interesting that Paul takes the same kind of approach here. It's on page 1184 where he says, Fathers, our children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. There's a very interesting pattern in all of Paul's writings about human relationships. Whenever Paul is writing about uh, husbands and wives, he generally always spends more time writing about a husband's responsibility than a wife's. That's just the way it is. When he refers to children, he always expresses what the father's responsibility is as well. I think that's because we men are a bit slow and a bit thick on some of these things. And Paul understood that. So these are two passages in which Paul speaks about an aspect of parenting. Interesting in both occasions, it has to do with a direct reference uh, to fathers. The other significant New Testament reference, I think, is 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 to 5, which expresses the practical response of children to the parents and grandparents, where it says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. <coughs> I just want to make sure Sarah and Kathy get this bit. <coughs> and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Time to save up, girls. So Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6 are the key passages. What lessons can we take away from this? And I want to simply leave two lessons with you this morning. We can take away that Scripture teaches that parents have a responsibility in training and instruction in the Lord as far as their children are concerned. And they have a responsibility for the psychological and emotional nurture of their children. I think these are the issues that Paul is highlighting. First of all, this idea of training and instruction of the Lord. The phrase, the instruction of the Lord, is interesting. Um, It's often, maybe usually, uh, taken to mean instruction about the way of salvation. But I'm not sure that that is a satisfactory uh, reading of what the the passage is saying. In Ephesians 6 and verse 4, when Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. He is not simply saying, bring them up so that they know how the gospel works and that they need to be saved. He is saying more than that, though very often in our evangelical world, what he says is reduced to that. And that is wrong. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the verses 8 to 10, the people of God are given this instruction where Moses says to them, What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. He is referring to the body of laws that was given by God to the people, which were not just issues about how they should worship God, but how they should structure their lives morally and socially. To confine Paul's statement in Ephesians 6 verse 4, which is no doubt a reflection of the Old Testament teaching, to the basics of the gospel, or merely to teaching children how they should and need to be saved, would be to misrepresent the thrust of Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the apostles. Neither Jesus nor the apostles simply teach people how to be saved. Their message is the message of the kingdom of God, in the context of which they explain 
how we must be saved and why we must be saved. They talk about salvation and they talk about reconciliation with God. When Jesus sits his disciples down and teaches them in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount and teaches them the values and the behavior of the kingdom of God, he is communicating to them things that are of utmost importance and value. This every bit as much as the message of his death on the cross as a ransom for many is the instruction of the Lord. We mustn't narrow the meaning or content of Paul's statement in Ephesians 6 and verse 4. Look at the context of his comment. If you go back to Ephesians 4, uh, first of all, to chapter 4 and verse 25, which is just over on the left-hand part of that page, page 1176, Paul has been explaining the gospel. He's been explaining how the gospel works. He's been explaining what it means to be part of the family of God. And then from verse 25 of chapter 4, he starts to explain some of the implications of this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin, he says. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Look what he says in verse 29. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Look what he says in verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And as you read the whole way down to verse 21 of chapter 5, Paul is dealing with issue after issue which has to do with values, with morality, with attitudes, with the way in which we live. And then he says to fathers, as he approaches that particular part of his practical teaching and instruction, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And he's just spent the last two chapters explaining what that actually means in practice. Parents should seek to see the rearing of their children in this context. Christian parents should not content themselves with simply teaching their children Bible stories and gospel messages for children. Jesus taught his disciples how to live. The Sermon on the Mount is the summary of Jesus' teaching for his people about how to live in the world as citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul reiterates these principles and develops some of the implications more specifically. This is what it means to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Teach moral values. Teach proper attitudes. Teach responsible behavior. Teach consideration for others. Teach love for God. Teach faith in Christ. Teach giving to the poor. Teach forgiveness. Teach sexual morality. Teach sobriety. Teach compassion. Just as with Samson, there are no guarantees that the children will listen. Just as with Jesus, there's no guarantees they won't from time to time give you difficulty. Just as with the man born blind, there are no guarantees that you won't get into trouble. There are just no guarantees in life anyway. Full stop. But this is what you do. You bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord about Jesus Christ and a way of life that is based on the values of the kingdom of God as we follow Jesus Christ. Secondly, it's quite clear from what the scripture says here that there is a responsibility on parents for the emotional and psychological development of the child. And again, fathers take note. It is said in the context specifically to fathers. 
I would love to have heard say, Paul say more on this subject. I would love to have heard him speak on this subject. I am quite convinced that in this little snippet that we see here in Ephesians and in Colossians, that Paul must have sat people down and explained this to them. He understood the way we work as human beings, and he seems to me to have had a profound interest in this kind of thing. I would love to know more of his teaching on this. We have his letters, but not his sermons, which is a real shame, but then that's the way God has ordained it, so fair enough. In Ephesians 6, verse 4, he says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Colossians 3.20, fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. These short phrases are so full of insight. Short in phrasing, but long on concern for children and for their development. It is very clear that parents are not to impose unreasonable expectations. They're not to impose impossible demands or unjust punishments on children. I wonder, does Paul understand this from his own experience? I'm not sure. But he fully understands that children can be broken by the attitude and expectation of parents. There will be plenty of hurt in the world for your children without it coming from you. There will be plenty of disappointment in the world for your children without you being the one to introduce them to it. There will be plenty of pain for your children without you being the one to inflict it. Paul senses and is concerned about the breaking of a child's morale, a breaking of their spirit. Some of the attitudes to discipline that I've read and heard spoken about amongst Christians seems to me to be totally contrary to the concerns that Paul expresses here. Paul understands that you can't expect a child to come easily to understand the unconditional love of God if the love of parents is absent or entirely conditional on pleasing the parents. Paul understands that it is possible to embitter a child and to destroy them psychologically through selfish, violent or brutal parenting. We live in a difficult world. We live in a world of lots of challenges. We live in a world of a great deal of human pain. Where it lies within your capacity as a parent Seek to follow the biblical pattern and instruction that is here. Remember that the breaking of a child makes God angry. The work of God is to nurture. That's as a father what he does with his people. That's the calling and task of parents with their children. It's no easy task to nurture a child in moral and spiritual values. And seek to encourage good behavior as well as nurturing them emotionally and psychologically is no easy task because parents aren't perfect either. But let's take away these two principles in being parents. The training and instruction of the Lord in all its breadth and meaning and the psychological and emotional nurture of a child. Take away with you encouragement to know that when you set your face to these tasks, however imperfectly you feel you achieve them, God will be with you. And God will be pleased as you seek to do his will by your kids. And I hope you also take away with you this morning the sympathetic prayers of those who watch you. Those without children. Those whose children have grown up and left home 
because you need our prayers and you need our support. And that's the task for the rest of us here this morning. May God bless his word. Let's be quiet together for a moment in God's presence. Heavenly Father, it seems to us that every human experience is like a two-sided coin. One face will speak of joy and happiness. Another will speak of distress or sorrow. We're very conscious that every aspect of our lives is reflected in this kind of way. And this morning we come conscious of that. We become conscious that it is our human rebellion and sinfulness that is the root cause of this, our, our, our decision, our choice, our determination to live our lives with our backs towards you, to live our lives according to our own standards and rules. We acknowledge that and, and we acknowledge our share in our own sorrow. But we come this morning to seek your grace <clears throat> and to seek your help come to express our gratitude for all the things that enrich our lives. And for those here among us this morning who are parents who are able to give that expression of thanks, we do so sincerely. But we recognize that parenting brings with it also great challenges and great sorrow. And we pray that you would equip us and make us strong to deal with whatever we encounter in our lives. Our Father, we look to you. We look to you not only for grace and strength, but we look to you to continue to model for us what it means to do right. Your word tells us that you will do that. Your word tells us that you will be faithful. We need you to be. We need you to deal with us fairly and justly, with compassion and mercy. We need you to deal with us in discipline as we need it. We need you to be honest with us. We need you not to change your standards. We need you to be consistent so that we'll get a glimpse, a sense of what it is we need to do for our children. So as we commit ourselves to you, as we ask that you would continue to remain faithful in all you do, we pray that you will give us grace and strength to hear your word, to receive it as blessing and encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.